Is QuickBooks slowing your business down? Do you have challenges managing inventory, project profitability, or just getting paid fast enough? Get your business to a better place and graduate to NetSuite today. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place, instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com info. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com info, netsuite.com info. Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your new source for all types of podcasts. We are looking for new podcasts to add to our channel. So if you ever wanted to start a podcast, reach out to us via Twitter, DM, or just add us at SND Podcast. Or message us on Facebook or even email us at sndpodcast at gmail.com. Once you reach out to us, we'll tell you the best way to create a podcast. All types of podcasts are, are welcome. So anything you want to talk about for a podcast, just let us know. No idea is a bad idea. We're already on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, and all other podcast apps. All you have to do is record the podcast. So hit us up soon so you can start your podcast now. Rising Report, it's that Apple Report, it's the Rising Apple Report. Rising Report, it's that Apple Report, it's the Rising Apple Report. Yeah! And a very... Good evening, although I don't believe uh, you guys will be listening to this mostly in the evening. Uh, this is the 139th edition of the Rising Apple Report, and we are now uh, coming at you from the uh, SND podcast channel on SoundCloud. And uh, a, a very uh, a good welcome to you, and, and we're happy to, for you to join us in this next chapter of the Rising Apple Report. And uh, we, we have a bunch of Rising Apple writers on the line right now. And uh, I'm going to start with the uh, the newest and the freshest, uh, and that's Darren Martino. Darren, welcome for the first time ever to the Rising Apple Report. Thank you. I'm happy to be on. Uh, and, and Danny, I, I uh, sorry, Darren, excuse me. Um, I uh, since I haven't really talked to you too much about your Mets fandom, uh, that's usually where we go. Uh, that's where we start when it comes to uh, uh, a new writer on the Rising Apple Report coming on and talking uh, talking some Mets. So. What is your Metsian background? What what are your what are your Metsian roots? Well, you know, I've been a Mets fan since probably since I was like a very early teenager. I got into baseball a little bit later than um, than some some of the other kids in my classes. But uh, my dad started taking me. My dad was a big you know Brooklyn Dodger fan uh, back in the the sixties and. He became a Mets fan and took me to some games, especially, you know, the late 80s. Um, I remember him, like, watching a lot of games on TV, and 
you know, in the early 90s, even though the team was rough, um, he took me to a lot of games, and, uh, you know, I just started loving them and uh, started hating the Yankees. Exactly, and uh, that's that's the way it goes. I converted myself, so I, I totally get you there. Uh, well, welcome to the Rising App Report. We're happy that you can join us, especially on this inaugural SoundCloud edition. Uh, JT, JT Tehran, what's going on with you? How are you doing today? Not too bad, not too bad. Glad to be able to join you guys and talk a little Mets baseball. It's nice that we can uh, talk about Mets baseball after the season's over. It kind of feels... Uh, you know, like it's been a long season, so it's nice to finally get into October and into the postseason. So I'm very excited to be here. Well, we took a little bit of a hiatus, and, and what's remarkable is that the 138th edition, which was our last on Blog Talk Radio, uh, said, yo, Powers weekend, but is it too little too late for the 2016 New York Mets? Well, it That's was us. not too little too late for the 2016 New York Mets, and now they can play at least one more game. Uh, Mike LeColant from Bensonhurst. What's going on? How you doing tonight, man? What's the dilly, kid? Uh, let me see. I'll follow suit. Uh, I'm an old curmudgeon. I'm a Gen Xer, so my Mets memory goes back intact to about 1974, 73, uh, like shadows and figures and, you know, isolated pictures in my mind that I can't really put together in uh, one continuous, you know, film. But uh, from 74 on, I got you, babe. So, uh, what's up? It's good to be speaking with everybody, and it's good to be speaking with you, uh, Sam. Happy holiday to you, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Happy holiday to you, too. The Mets are in the playoff, and it's, uh, it, it's, a, I, I just, it's just remarkable to me that they, uh, they got this done. Uh, Rich Farrago from Connecticut. What's going on, Rich? How you doing, Sam? And, um, you know, I'll kind of tail on to what everybody else was saying in the sense that the baseball season ended for most yesterday, and it did not end for the New York Mets, which is an outcome that I don't think even the most diehard optimistic Mets fans thought would be the case um, as far back as August 20th. So I'm thrilled that the Mets are in this situation. And, and going back to Mets fandom roots, if I may, that seems to be the, the norm here. Um, my first vivid memories are of the 73 season, which, as I've written on the Rising Apple site, I see a lot of corollaries between the 73 season and the run that the 2016 team has just made. But you know, in the 73 season, I remember um, they, they came, they rose like a phoenix from the ashes and you know, sneaking the transistor radio under my pillow for the night games and then falling asleep and not being able to uh, contain my excitement in the morning as I was running around trying to ask if they won the night before as they made this incredible run. And um, so, yeah, that, that's where my roots go back to. And uh, like Mike, you know, that same basic era. And, um, hey, you know, I'm hoping for a repeat of 73 because in 73 they, they were supposed to lose to everybody in the, in the postseason because they just weren't good enough. Well, they beat the Reds. And just uh, the only tweak I would say in the 73 season that I'm hoping for is an actual World Series win as opposed to a, a seven-game series loss. But we'll take this one step at a time. One step at a time, and that step starts Wednesday. And... Uh... Uh, Darren, when you were talking about uh, your roots, your father's roots as a Brooklyn Dodger fan, uh, it definitely it, there there are a lot of Brooklyn Dodger roots on this podcast. Uh, you know, from uh, Mr. Bensonhurst to Michael Colant uh, to to Danny Abriano, who is our site editor, uh, and uh, you know from Brooklyn as well, and has a lot of Brooklyn roots. And, and Danny, it's uh, it's nice it's it's nice to. Uh, 
you know, wait till next year, as they say, and and as next year arrived, uh, so did the playoffs again. Yeah, this is um, something that's still kind of <clears throat> a little bit surreal. Since I've been old enough to actually enjoy watching Mets games, this has only happened one other time, uh, 1999 and 2000, where they made the playoffs in back-to-back years. So this is uncharted territory for me um, in the last 16 years. And it's really, like I said, it's really surreal. They were 60 and 62. They seem totally buried. Um, it, I Even when I gave in my money for the playoffs, I was kind of doing it just in case, just as a hedge in case they made it. And I was laughing at the idea that they might have home field for the wild card game. And now here we are in about 48 hours. It's going to be Thor against Bumgarner. And um, I'm just anxious to get going. So like we've said, like, you know, how do we get here? Uh, we were 60 and 62. What's remarkable from a personal perspective for me was that the morning of August 19th, I fell off my bicycle going home. Uh, and, and that's basically when all of this started was when I broke my clavicle, my left clavicle. Uh, it, it, they have gone. They went to finish the year. They went twenty-seven and thirteen, if I'm not mistaken, since that accident. And it's uh, it, it's just mind-boggling that that when I was you know, and I haven't rested uh, too much because I definitely needed to still make some money. Uh, but I sat back and, and watched this team while I was on the DL, uh, just uh, rake off uh, big win after big win after big win. I mean, there wasn't one game. That wasn't huge going down this stretch. And um, Danny, what what are some of your memories from this stretch? Because regardless of what happens Wednesday, this is going to be viewed as a, a, a sizable accomplishment in the history of this franchise. Yeah, I think I think the pickup of Fernando Salas, which was really kind of something that was glossed over at the time, was enormous. I mean, as good as Addison Reed has been. Salas has been there as a seventh inning guy, and without that down the stretch, I don't know where they, they would have been. And obviously, it was it was ridiculous how every time we thought Steven Match was coming back, he would get to either a day before the game, two days before the game, and something would come up. I can't throw. It's still bothering me. Now I have an impingement. And you had Robert Gazelman and Seth Lugo stepping in, and you kept waiting for one of them to just turn back into a pumpkin, for somebody to just get clobbered during a game, for one of them to get hurt. It, it never happened. And in the case of Gazelman, if you look deeper into his numbers, he has staying power. Um, he's not doing this by accident. He's not doing this with mirrors. He's actually been as good as his numbers indicate. And obviously, you have to look at the game where, as Drupal won it late, the amazing bat flip, coming back from two runs down in extras after they came back in the ninth. I mean, it's so many, so many different things, so many guys contributing. And... You know, this is why when you look at the Mets going into the playoffs, yeah, they're not going to have Harvey. They're not going to have DeGrom. They're not going to have Mats. But there's something about this team that just, it's dangerous. And I, I wouldn't want to face them if I was any of these other teams in the playoffs. That's a good point. And uh, to piggyback on Gazelman, and Rich, I'll go to you next. Uh, I think about the, the game that the Mets came back <clears throat> against the Braves down in Turner Field. Uh, speaking of Gazelman. Uh, where Gazelman, I think by the, like, it was the fourth or fifth inning, he really started to get hit. Uh, after only having given up one run, he gave th- up three more. And, but the thing about, him, about it was that it could have really, really continued to piggyback into uh, more runs. Uh, he could have given in. But if I remember correctly, with runners, I, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but with runners on, he struck out uh, one of the Braves hitters 
uh, to walk off the mound, having uh, limited the damage. And the Mets were able to win 6-4 to four with an incredible comeback against the bullpen of the Braves. Uh, that's, that's, I think, Danny was saying, like, you know, uh, waiting for these guys to turn back into a pumpkin. Uh, that's the, the most that I can really remember him struggling. Maybe the Philly game, basically his first, the, the first major league start that he made. Uh, but besides that, he was always able to limit the damage and not have anything really blow up on uh, on him. It, it he it, he was he's he has been very very. Uh, uh, it, it's just been remarkable to watch him to watch him pitch. It's been fun. It has you know, and when you think about it, here's a kid with. I'm not going to say he doesn't have good stuff because he can crank it up to 95, uh, but he doesn't do that on a regular basis. So here's a kid who clearly has to rely on pitching smarts and guile to get through difficulty. And that's not a bad thing because you know, if you take a guy who just comes up from AAA and, and he's made his way through the minor league system blowing people away, oftentimes those guys don't know what to do when they can't blow away hitters. That's the only thing they know. Well, Gesellman clearly is a very smart pitcher, and he uses that intelligence to his advantage. And, and let's, not, let's not forget about Rene Rivera. I mean, Rene Rivera is someone who, you know, he clearly calls a good game. He manages the game. He's helping these young guys out. So, and when I think about Gesellman, you know, like you guys are talking about the, and Sammy made a great point about the Brave game, which was a Friday night game. I, I go back to the game on, I think it was August 23rd, a, a Tuesday night in St. Louis. The Mets had just split in San Francisco, winning the second two of the four-game series. And then they go to St. Louis to play a team they were battling for the wild card. And who's on the mound but Robert Gesellman? And what does this guy do? He, you know, he wasn't dominant that night, but he kept them in the game. I think he threw six that night. And he, had a, he knew what was going on. He knew that this team was, was needing every win and was playing a team that, that was in front of them in the wild card race. And he gave the Mets a chance to win that ball game. And they did win that ball game. And... Every game, as I said, was important at that point. So this is a kid who's not intimidated by anything. Um, now, that's not to say, should the Mets get to the DS, that somebody might hit him or, or something like that. But he's not intimidated. He's not afraid of the moment. And he has, he has it going on upstairs, which I think we all know, when the chips are down, sometimes it's just as important to have it upstairs in your head as it does to have it in your arm. So... Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty high on Gasellman. I really like the guy. Uh, the, you know, what do people call him? Declone, right? Because he kind of looks yeah. like Degrom. I love that. So I'm um, I'm pretty high on him. And nothing to take away from what Seth Lugo has done, but I think we we all definitely understand that that uh, Gazelman probably has uh, more of the upside uh, than Seth Lugo. Um, but but also, I mean, you brought up a lot of different great points, Rich, um, to segue with. And, but it, it, what's really interesting about that, you know, when Gazelman made his major league debut, was that it, it, none of us wanted John Neese to be any part of this, <laughs> and apparently, fate thought uh, fate thought uh, the same. And, and uh, you know, JT, it's it's just funny that they they picked him up for depth and everybody fell apart. Uh, but it just it. it it opened the door for for some of these young kids to just come in and and uh, just show, uh, you know, we we're, we're pretty low on John Neese, but just to show him how to have an attitude. Yeah, and to be honest, what I think you know, the Mets pitching coaching staff needs to really get some credit. Uh, Dan Worthen has been 
um, really, really good working with these guys. And, you know, it hasn't always worked out. Uh, but I think, especially talking about Gazelman, you have his slider, um, which in spring training when he was throwing, it really wasn't that much of a, of, I just, I wouldn't even consider it one of his primary pitches. Um, and all of a sudden now he gets up here and he's been working on it, been working on it. He was throwing at 92 on his last start. So it's been, it's been a work in progress. These kids are putting the work in, they're being mentored correctly, um, I cannot say enough for the fact that Gazelman has great hair. I think that also has a lot to do with it. Um, but <laughs> I'm kidding. But it, these guys are just, they're working their asses off. And, you know, it's really, really nice to see. We can see where um, the likes of DeGrom came from. Uh, Syndergaard was obviously just a freak of nature in terms of his overall abilities. But Matt's, all these guys that are coming out from, from, from the system, it's just, it's really, really good to see. It's going to be a great problem for us to deal with next year. Um, and so far, yeah, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not too worried. Like, um, I think it was Danny that wrote an article, not, uh, so I don't know, remember if it was yesterday or today talking about playing with house money. Um, and that's essentially what the Mets are doing right now. These kids are getting, going to be getting some great experience, whether the Mets go beyond the wild card, hopefully they do and into the division series. And it's going to be invaluable, uh, regardless of how they perform. Uh, for the future. So I think there's a lot of credit that deserves to go around and we're really, really hoping that they can just keep this up. And if they do, I mean, this story is just shaping up to be one of the greatest we've seen in a very long time. It could very well be. And I, you know, you, you definitely kid, but I think if anybody out there, and I highly suggest you take a look at SNY's online web series, the amazing life with Noah Syndergaard, uh, the guy, the guy's got a knack for, uh, for entertainment and uh, JT, uh, maybe all anybody sees in the batter's box between Gazelman, Degrom, and Noah is just the hair flip. The the constant Look, Seth hair flip. Lugo, Seth Lugo needs to either grow his hair out or he needs to go blonde. Well, One of the two. It, it, you know, it, you you have the offense here with you know with Cabrera and Reyes going blonde, and you have our pitching staff with you know some amazing head of long hair. So. It's it's kind of cool that this is uh, even something that we're talking about just in fun, but um, but yeah, no, seriously, maybe that's one of the things that that contributes to it. It gives them a little bit more uh, power. <laughs> and Darren, you know, you can. I, I want you to go uh, off on wherever uh, regarding everything that we've just talked about. But before I do, I'm going to start with this idea that I, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, the the um, hair is more important than we realize. And a lot of people have been uh, wanting, uh, like, Seth Lugo to grow the hair, but also, <laughs> let's say, David Wright to finally grow that mustache. I mean, just can you imagine an older, wiser David Wright standing in there <laughs> with a Hojo or Keith mustache standing in the, right, the right-handed batter's box? <laughs> I, I think at this point it's very apparent that the Mets are drawing their power from the hair. So it, it would be beneficial for everyone on the team to grow theirs out. I play, think. The, play, the playoff locks. Uh, I exactly. think that's what, you know, they probably should have gotten a head start on it, but uh, I think that's what the, the move should be uh, as they head into next year. I, I think everybody on the team should grow out their hair, uh, especially the pitching staff. Exactly, exactly. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to talk about this run that we've uh, been discussing? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I actually missed a lot of it. Uh, I, I um, left for Europe for like a two and a half week trip of Europe 
right after the the Diamondbacks uh, second loss uh, on the 17th. So I missed that entire Giants series. And, you know, I would only be able to get the box score uh, in in the morning or in the afternoon because the six hour time difference uh, as I was going around Europe. Uh, and I saw some of the names that you know that they were putting into the in, onto the starting rotation. I, and I was like, "Who is Lugo?" I'd never, I never even, I hadn't honestly, I hadn't heard of him. Uh, you know, because you know, I, I I had heard of Gesellman, but I didn't hear anything good about him. I, I knew his ERA was pretty high in AAA, and you know, day after day, I would see you know that these guys were putting in you know quality performances, and it just amazed me. And then, you know, when I got back, it was uh, the beginning of September. And my friend said, go back to Europe because, <laughs> you know, we were left for dead when I when I left. And, you know, we were in the thick of the, the wild card race when I got back. It's a, a kind of um, a Mike, I feel like. Eh, actually, Rich, I think, didn't you have a similar story recently? I, I was going to go to Mike, uh, Mike uh, regarding 1986 and being deployed in Germany, but... Rich, didn't you say that you kind of missed uh, uh, something when because you were traveling? Yeah, I've had a lot of travel lately, and um, you know, I was actually um, in California when they went on their uh, when they went on their little run. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't in San Francisco to, to to go to the games. I was in Southern Cal, but sometimes it seems like at least you know maybe this is just a doom and gloom Mets fan in me. But sometimes it seems like they perform better when I'm not watching the game. Right. So, you know, I remember um, I was in Southern Cal on business. I went to an Angels game, and, and they won. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is the start of something, and maybe I shouldn't watch more often. So, yeah, that does seem to happen, Sam. <laughs> uh, Mike, I'll go to you next. Uh, um, you're, kinda, you're, you're, you're basically the minor league guy for us. You, you do discuss a lot about the minor leagues on uh, RisingApple.com. And when uh, he was mentioning Gazelman and the high ERA, I mean, it seems as if his bread and butter is that sinker, which probably didn't sink too much in Las Vegas. No, uh, and, and conditions play a large part in that. But, you know, I don't want to bore everyone with uh, climate and this, that, and the other. I'll just say this. You know, just when the season seemed like it was falling apart like wet toilet paper, you know, here come the kids from Las Vegas. Last year, 11 of the 25 members of the Mets NLCS roster was comprised of players who played at Las Vegas between 2013 and 2015. This season, more or less, was no different. Rivera, Brandon Nemo, even Ciccini made his debut this year. Seth Lugo, DeSelman, who we spent a lot of time talking about. These guys were major contributors when the situation was just utterly dire. I mean, ruinous injury upon ruinous injury. I honestly packed it in a, a while ago. That's why... This season turned out to be so much fun, uh, more fun than than most seasons. Uh, in, in fact, I, I would say this run was even more improbable than last year's run, uh, which just made it even that much more enjoyable. But you know, these kids they came in and, and, and they filled roles for us, and they got key hits, and they pitched key innings, and, and they plugged the holes and. and and they prevented the dam from bursting. They really did. Think about all the injuries that occurred on the Mets. And then think about all these kids. And if you include the ones from last year and incorporate the ones from this year, what a fantastic job they did. And JT, 
you know, he gave credit, and, and rightfully so, to Dan Warthen for perhaps enhancing his slider. Because, it, it, again, I don't want to bore anybody with climate conditions, but it's arid, it's dry, and, and uh, because of the dryness, pitchers have a hard time mastering breaking pitches because they don't have the moisture on their fingertips. So they can't maximize that. So what does that cause you to do? It causes you to throw more fastballs, which means you're living over the plate more, which means your ERA is inevitably going to go up. And, and more so these days than in previous years, it's more uniquely a Las Vegas problem because the Pacific Coast League has gotten uh, homogenized ever since uh, the American Association got broken up and, and swallowed up by the two existing leagues now. But the point is, or I, I wanted to make early, is that Frank Biola is a common denominator in many of mm -hmm. these pitches' development. You know, he's had a hand in many, if not almost all of them, uh, who currently participate on the Mets or are disabled or whatever their case may be. So I would give him equal credit as well for, for allowing these pitchers to come up to the major leagues as polished and as confident as they did. Uh, and that I, I would, you know, give direct credit to Frank Viola, a former major leaguer, a Cy Young award winner. And I, 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 I often find Sandy Alderson hard-pressed to give, you know, now the departed Wally Backman or even Frank Viola any kind of public credit for, for their development. He always refers to St. Lucie or what's transpiring in Binghamton before he ever gets around to Frank Viola. Don't know why that is. Obviously, the situation with Backman was a lot more apparent to all of us, but that's water under the bridge at this point. But, you know, hooray for the kids from Las Vegas. They came in, filled a need when we needed them most. Congratulations to them. Congratulations on Cicchini and Nemo and Rivera for making their major league debuts and making major contributions, especially Rivera, who went undrafted. He's a local kid from the Bronx. I applaud him. Good job. It just goes to show that sometimes the draft is a crapshoot, and you just never know until you give a kid a chance. You know, and T.J. Rivera, TJ Rivera was uh, where I wanted to go uh, from here. Um, and Danny, I mean, he's just done a, a fantastic job. He also seems to adjust. He, he puts the barrel on the ball. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure whether he's going to keep hitting 345 for the rest of his career. Uh, but he, he's just been a big part of the reason why we had a one-game lead at the end, of the, uh, the end of the season. Yeah, it's been pretty ridiculous. And I'll have to say that, you know, he always hit well in the minors. Obviously, in Vegas, it's a different kind of condition. It's really favorable to the hitters, and he, he raked while in Vegas. But he's come up, come up, and it's not like he's getting lucky. I mean, he really does sting the ball. And he's hitting 333, 345 on base, 476 slugging. You couldn't have expected a shred of what he's done. And the fact that both Neil Walker and Flores went down and you somehow had Rivera step in, it's just, it's amazing for this team. They really did deserve something like that to happen. I mean, when you lose Harvey, you lose DeGrom, you lose Matt, Wright is gone for the season. Like I just said, you lost Walker, you lost Flores. You have Cespedes playing hurt. You have Cabrera playing hurt. Ligar is playing hurt. Duda playing hurt. You know what? They they deserved to have one guy come from out of nowhere and outperform anything people thought they could possibly do. And it's been great. Um, one one small issue with Rivera is that his range seems to be 
non-existent uh, at second base. He kind of looks like he's in quicksand at times. So as we get into the postseason, that's something to keep an eye on because that can come back and bite you, as we saw with Daniel Murphy last year. But you can't complain when he's done. It's been it's been terrific. He'll be in there in the starting lineup on Wednesday night. Um, and yeah, he's he's exceeded anything we could have possibly imagined. I'll, before moving on, um, I'll, I'll go back to that, Danny. Uh, it does seem still that he has better instincts out there, even if his range might not be all that good. Um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Daniel Murphy, because Daniel Murphy, you know, like TJ is at least going to be consistent out there, whereas Daniel Murphy at any moment can go to the side of a ball instead of getting in front of it. Right, TJ's going to make the plays he gets to. There haven't been any um, O TJ moments like there were O Murph moments, as we obviously saw from 2008-2015, as we saw in the World Series last year, unfortunately, as some of us witnessed that firsthand. Um, yeah, Rivera is not going to muff the ball. He's not going to throw the ball to the stands. He's not going to make crazy spins and throws. But yeah, the range the range is less than desired, but he's not going to make any O Murph uh, plays. Uh, JT, you know, if, if Daniel Murphy does anything against the Dodgers, um, in, in this upcoming division series, I'm sure the Dodgers are going to go Daniel Murphy again. <laughs> uh, you know, um, but, but to, I guess, you know, segue off of Daniel Murphy, uh, the second base position, I mean, they, it's, it's remarkable, everywhere they've been since uh, the end of the, the World Series last year. Yeah, no, for sure. It's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, we had New Walker stabilize that, you know, that part of the middle, of the, the defensive uh, uh, parts of the infield. But um, once he went down, you had... I mean, Kelly Johnson's a, a pretty good uh, defensive second baseman, I'd say. He's, uh, he's getting up there in age, but much like... Um, much like TJ Rivera, he's not going to make a, a dumb throw. He's a veteran. He knows what he's what he's doing. So um, it's been it's been a crazy crazy time these last few weeks, uh, especially in in the infield. But TJ Rivera's presence there, I think, not only excuse me, not only in the offensive side, but he's he's a young kid. He has that energy. He has that that thing of you know uh, that motivation that all these young kids have, and that real hunger to be able to keep going and to to make an impact and he hasn't let uh nothing get in the way of him so far he's he's breaking the ball like has already been mentioned already so i'm really looking forward to seeing what he does um against Bumgarner. uh i feel like he's not the type of guy that tries to go for power that's not gonna end up uh getting into those prolonged slumps because he's trying to hit you know too many home runs his swing is just so even it's effortless um, so I, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And I'm really excited to see what these guys can do up against uh, a, a star uh, you know, like Bumgarner is. Uh, Rich, he's got confidence written on his face, you know? I mean, you see him know that he can handle the situation up there. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it, Sam. And, and you know, as people have alluded to before, when you think about his path, you know, an undrafted free agent, um, you know, kind of toiled around here and there, and and you want to root for him. You know, as Mike said, he's a kid from local kid from the Bronx and all of that. Um, so, and then you know, here he is after that that sort of you know circuitous route to get to Major League Baseball, and he acts like he owns the place. You know, and I mean that in a good way. He doesn't look intimidated. He plays with confidence. Um, I agree with what Danny said. I am I am a little concerned about his defense, particularly on the range, but. 
um, I you know I'll make that sacrifice for somebody who goes up there with the kind of approach you need, and it's the kind of approach that you know many of the Mets don't have. Let's face it, the Mets have some all or nothing guys. Like uh, unfortunately, Duda's become that kind of a player. Cespedes can get into that rut a little bit, but Rivera takes that steady line drive swing, and um, and he produces. You know, and, and I I will do an entire mea culpa on that because I I was not a big fan of. I, I believe the my exact quote was, there's a reason why this guy was undrafted and has bounced around the minor leagues. I don't want any part of him on the ball club. But he's come up and, and uh, proven me wrong, and I'm happy about that. You know, his 333 average, 345 on base and 476 slugging, I'll take that any day of the week. And, and, and let's not forget the home run he hit against the Nationals in the 10th inning when the Mets were seemingly destined to a horrific loss. Um, that was a huge win. They, they avoided the sweep in Washington, got an enormous win. Um, and you know, and, and it was TJ Rivera in the 10th inning. So yeah, here's a guy who's come up and in 33 games played has made an impact and, and good for him. Yep. Um, Mike, uh, you might have an idea about this. I, I figured if in the Bronx, if there's any, um, you know, area that's going to be ripe with Met fans, uh, it's probably right across the way, either the Throg's Neck or, or the Whitestone Bridge uh, across from, from City Field. So, I mean, I don't know whether, uh, I don't know whether there's any information out there as to, to who T.J. Rivera was rooting for growing up. Uh, my guess is the Yankees, but um, it, would, would you say that there's, there's probably uh, some Met fans? Because uh, I'm, I'm guessing that side is, is still closer to City Field. It's easier to get to that ballgame. That's a good question as far as his uh, childhood loyalties. I'm not sure. I don't recall him ever even mentioning that or that question even being asked. And if it was, I missed it. Uh, but the Bulls are fiercely loyal. Brooklyn is, uh, you know what? You're going to get an old guy's answer. That's the problem. You might want to ask somebody else. And, and, and I mean that in all sincerity. Uh because I would tell you that Queens is fiercely loyal to the Mets and Bronx is fiercely loyal to the Yankees. Although you'll have Met fans sprinkled in to Bronx County and you'll have Yankee fans sprinkled in Queens County. Uh, I think Brooklyn was always split. That's always been my experience, even from a from a child. Although you know, since the dynasty, it's clearly become yeah, it's clearly become a Yankee town. But that you know, that tide is is you know changing now uh staten island i find my my experience with staten island is that's also split down the middle and manhattan i just leave them out of the loop because it's doesn't belong to us anymore it's an international island uh so you know you know you need a passport these days to get into manhattan so let's just leave them out of the loop you know let's just leave them that's out such, of the loop man that's such a brooklyn answer i love it it's just such a brooklyn answer <laughs> Uh, Darren, what's been your favorite thing about T.J. Rivera? You know, uh, you know, since this kid came up, I've been nothing but impressed at you know his his vision at the plate and just his ability to get the bat on the ball. And you know, the as the Mets were struggling, as the offense were sh- was struggling, you know, throughout the first half of the year, <clears throat> you know, we heard whisperings of you know, what about this guy T.J. Rivera? He's batting like three thirty and. and in in Vegas, and you know what you would hear is that you know, oh he's undrafted, you know, you can't got to take you know the Pacific Coast League and 
Vegas specifically with a grain of salt. You know, after all, even, you know, Eric Campbell does well in Vegas. Um, so, you know, I had really no expectations for him, but, you know, he's come up and, you know, he's really performed to the, to the back of, you know, to the, his AAA, you know, standards that he's set. Um, you know, he, you know, he kind of looks like physically, he looks like, uh, the crossbreed of like, if A-Rod and Derek Jeter had a son, he kind of <laughs> looks like him. And apparently, uh, according, according to a lot of people, A-Rod had wished that at some point. and uh you know he's starting he's starting to to hit um you know not i'm not gonna put him in the 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 class of those two but you know he's starting he's definitely impressed with his bat and you know i just would like to see him you know maybe take uh you know get on base with a little bit more you know take a few more walks but um you know he he's been he's been great, and you know as we questioned on August first, what's the plan at second base? You know T.J. Rivera has come up and really taken the the bull by the horns and said that you know look at me, uh, you know I could take this job next year. Uh, Danny, generally speaking, overall that the lineup has just been taking better at bats. I mean, I think it, it's not just that they're hitting better. It, it it's they're they're extending their at bats they're 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 staying in it. You're seeing a lot of foul balls and, and uh, none other than Jay Bruce, uh, um, who has had a rocky, uh, who did have a rocky first uh, few few uh, month and a half basically, but then really turned it on at the end just when we needed him the most. And you know that confidence that we were talking about that you see in TJ when he's up there, that confidence which wasn't there at all in any of his at bats is finally back there. You see that out of Jay Bruce right now. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, a couple of weeks ago, even maybe 10 days ago, the majority of the fan base didn't want Bruce in the lineup, including me. Uh, the majority of people who cover this team for a living didn't want Bruce in the lineup, thought it wasn't a good idea. Even Terry Collins was benching him, pinch hitting for him with Eric Campbell. So it's been quite the turnaround for him. Uh, not sure exactly what was bothering him when he was basically horrific for about a month. But it obviously couldn't have come at a better time with the team just two days away from the wild card game, hopefully four days away from the NLDS. They needed Bruce to get going. Obviously, Conforto, Diazza, those are your other options in the corner outfield if you don't have Bruce going. But this is a terrific thing. And even though Bumgarner's a lefty, it's great to have another, another threat in there to go along with Cespedes, with Granderson, the long ball threat. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been great to see. And along with him hitting the crap out of the ball over the last six or seven games, he looks like he's enjoying himself. He's finally smiling out there on the field, hugging Cespedes in the dugout. So it's been great to see, and hopefully he just keeps it up. What was up with him? Uh, there was that gif that was going around that everybody was just, he looked a little... Uh... Um, inebriated inebriated yeah but but I'm not sure Danny if you heard his interview with Steve Gelbs after and I, I think it happened after he was trying to you know sort out something behind uh, basically photobombing uh, but but I thought his interview was real I thought he was very very sharp uh, in, in his response uh, to Steve Gelbs yeah I guess before he got totally hammered or oh, so that happened hammered. that happened before okay I think that was before he was totally tarnished, unless he just controlled himself for the interview. But uh, obviously, there was that story that came out a few days after he got traded to the Mets that said 
he didn't want to get traded to the Mets and blah, blah, blah. And he, I don't think that was ever really addressed. But no matter what happened, he seemed like a guy that was genuinely happy to be here, um, genuinely happy to go to the postseason. And that's all you can really ask of, of somebody who gets traded midseason. And obviously, they're going to pick up his option for 2017. So it's, it's a nice thing to see him embracing the team and the city. Yeah, agreed. Um, JT, uh, Granderson in the four hole. That's really started to work out, and that's what he was he was originally brought here to do. Yeah, you know, it's funny because he has hit a ton of leadoff home runs for the Mets, uh, but with Jose Reyes beating, being the atypical, um, I'm sorry, the typical leadoff hitter that you would want and expect with speed and, you know, his ability to make contact, having Granderson in the four-hole has definitely worked out. I th- uh, out of his, his home runs this year, he's hit seven off lefties. Um, including one off John Lester when the Cubs were uh, at City Field. He had that to, to left center field. And so I'm excited for him in the four hole because the Mets have a, a lot of lefties, first of all, so they need to be able to split them up well. But I think he can actually make some good contact against, against Bumgarner. I would not be surprised if it goes the other way, too, that he ends up swinging at garbage and because he tends to be a high strikeout guy. But like we saw last year in the postseason when Granderson you know, gets to this next level. He played amazingly well last year. He took some really, uh, he drove the ball well, and he took some really important walks last year in the postseason as well against some really, really tough pitching. So I'm excited to see him do the same thing uh, as well, just this time more out of a power spot. And, you know, with guys backing him up in, in the lineup, I think he'll have, you know, he'll be pretty good. If, like, we're expecting, um, should be TJ Rivera batting after him, if I'm not mistaken, and then Bruce after him to, to split the lefties. So if, if you know, they're going to try to pitch carefully to Granderson or pitch, you know, uh, not go after him as much because of, because of uh, TJ Rivera behind him, I think it could end up benefiting uh, Granderson and the Mets offense, you know, in, in, a long, in the long run. So hopefully, and I, I'm excited. I'm excited to have him in the four hole. Rich, uh Curtis Granderson, it, it's a very, very uh, strange player that we that we have here. You know, he he's he's can be absolutely fantastic and he can be absolutely miserable. Um, but I I just have a feeling though that that uh, no matter how frustrating Curtis Granderson can be, I think he, he's going to have um, staying power w- when it comes to his Mets legacy. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because I'm looking at Granderson's numbers and they're a bit paradoxical. You know, the 30 home runs and 59 RBIs, it kind of jumps off the page. Now, granted, you know, as people have alluded to, a lot of those home runs are generated out of the leadoff spot where you're not going to get the RBIs okay. Um, so you look at that. And then you look at the fact that he leads the team in strikeouts with 130. So he's always done that his whole career. So on some level... The Mets, you know, if you wind the clock back to December of 2013 when they signed him, and now you look at this line he put up this year. He put up a 237 batting average with 30 home runs and 59 RBIs. The RBIs are a little weird, but he, he put up that line. That's kind of what they thought they were getting, right? I mean, Granderson really was about a 240 hitter or so over his career when they signed him, and he was good for, you know, take out the 40-plus the home run years in the band box. Um, and he was good for about, on average, 30-ish, you know, 35-ish home runs. So they pretty much got what they bargained for. 
the other part of it is, and, and Terry Collins said this, and I have to agree with him on this, Granderson came to be the leadoff hitter, as you guys are talking about, and he was for a while, then they put him in, he came to be the cleanup hitter, and then he, he was for a while, then they put him in the leadoff spot, and he adapted to that. He did the job there, he walked more, he got on base, you know, as a leadoff hitter in 2015, and now they've put him back, at least for the most part, in the cleanup spot, and he's doing that job effectively. So when I look at Curtis Granderson, his legacy to me is going to be they got pretty much exactly what they had reason to believe they were getting when they signed him. Um, and the guy's a good team guy. You know, he does what's asked of him. I, I, I have to think we're not in the clubhouse, but I have to think his leadership by example rubs off on the younger guys because, again, He'll do whatever the team asks him to do. From what Terry said just the other day, uh, Granderson isn't really happy about the idea of playing center field, yet he's doing it pretty darn well. Um, he became a right that catch. That catch the other day. How about that? You know, we're at the top uh -huh. of the fence. You know, he, um, he became a right fielder for the Mets and did that pretty well. Let's not forget, he played some left field for the Mets and did that pretty well. So... You know, I, I think Granderson won't go down as, as a Mike Piazza kind of acquisition, but here's a guy that gave you what you paid for both on the field and off, and, and I think it was a damn good move, and I'm happy he's still a Met. Yeah, no, you, you make a great point just about the, the, the RBI numbers uh, were driven down this year, uh, certainly by how pitiful he was for the majority of the year until, until uh -huh. recently with uh, runners in scoring position. I mean, you know, historically awful, where I think it's like only like it was at some certain point. He had like three hits. That was it. Um, uh, Darren, I'll go to you next. Um, uh, Curtis Granderson, what's your opinion? Uh, you know, this guy is just a Class A guy. You know, um, you know, we all, most Mets fans buried him this year. And, you know, you know, rightfully so. He was batting what, maybe the low, you know, two teens uh, for the majority of the season. The fact that he even got his average up to two thirty-seven is incredible. <laughs> it just shows how hot he has been the last, uh, you know, the last few weeks. It's um, it's remarkable. This guy is, you know, just uh, you can tell he's one of the leaders of the team. He, you know, sets a good example. Um, you know he can. You can tell he's well liked by by the rest of his team, uh, specifically Lucas Duda. Um, if you if you watch the weed pile, Lucas Duda uh, on Instagram. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, for for whatever reason, the the leadoff spot wasn't working the same way it did last year uh, this year, and you know. Uh, obviously, if you look at his career, he's a middle of the of the lineup type of guy, and you know now that he's back there, um, he's flourishing again. You know, I mean, it helps also when you know there's protection in the lineup and people are actually hitting. Um, but you know, this is a streaky team, and you know, it's it's awesome that they're hitting one of their hot streaks right now at the right time. And hopefully that hot streak continues. And you brought up the leadoff position. I definitely want to segue over to that because that's 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 a good segue. Uh, but Mike, um, Curtis Granderson, I would say that based off you know what what Rich said, what uh, what JT said, versatile and durable. While all these while all these other players ha have gone down, 
Um, you know, he has adapted, and he's also stayed on the field. And, and you can't say enough about, about those aspects of it. Guys are professional, plain and simple. Uh, he's a calming influence. Uh, look, I wasn't, upon his signing, I, I thought it was very yawn-inspiring, but you have to consider the times. Today, I'm shaking my pom-poms, bro. I'm right behind him. Go, Grandy, go. Go, Grandy, go. I got nothing bad to say about him. You know, he's obviously better suited for the middle of the lineup. We knew that all along. But like you say, and like everyone's been saying, he's been adaptable. He did what he did. He did it well. You know, I give him credit. He's getting up in age. But, you know, he's still out there hustling and setting, setting an example. Is he going to be important? Damn right he's going to be important, whether it be in center field, left or right. I'm shaking my pom-poms. Go, Grandy, go. Danny, uh, I think this is a good way of segueing over to the, uh, the roster overall for the wildcard game. But speaking of the leadoff position, Jose Reyes. It's not exactly the way we thought he, you know, uh, he would be a Met, at, at, you know, hopefully maybe again at some point. But it's weird the way life works, and um, they were meant for each other, and uh, they, they have uh, found each other once more. They have. It's definitely uh, something that goes with the surreal nature of the, the season itself. I think anybody who reads Rising Apple knows that I was against bringing Reyes in, um, not only because of <clears throat> the issue and the incident he had with his wife in Hawaii during the off season, but because he just didn't seem to have anything left. And you know, I think lots of people were saying that he just had nothing left. He was a negative player in in Colorado his last year in Toronto. And I think that coming to New York really has rejuvenated him. Maybe he just wasn't giving it his all in either of those places. And that's that's horrible to not give it your all uh, when you're getting paid as much money as he's getting paid. But it seems to have rejuvenated him. He obviously loves living in New York. He always had that house on Long Island that he kept. And now he's back home. He talks about how much he loves going to the ballpark every day. He thanks God that he's back and blah, 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 and all this stuff. So it's, it's great to see. Uh, it's still hard to really unleash the Jose Love that I had back in 2005, 6, 7. He was one of my favorite players ever. Um, but it's definitely interesting and, and cool to see that David Wright went down and it's Jose Reyes who replaced him, which is just really weird to see and really weird to say. Yeah, that that is very strange. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I well, we can certainly at some point talk about uh, what this means for next season um, when it comes to to uh, Jose Reyes, I think you know second base has a lot to do with it. But now all of a sudden, second base, like we're, we're the reason Dilson Herrera was expendable is because we have all these different second basemen who can help us out next year. Um, with David Wright potentially uh, being at third, but Jose Reyes is is obviously some good insurance in case uh, David Wright's not able to to make that happen. Um, uh, so with the roster. Um, you know, uh, th there's a lot of different ways you could go about doing it. We were talking a little bit off air as to, to what to do. Danny, you wrote about it earlier. What's your take? Well, from reading things that Terry Collins has said, what John Rico has said, what Sandy Alderson has suggested, looks like they're going to take uh, nine or ten pitchers, which would obviously let them carry a whole bunch of extra guys on the bench. So, you know, just... To not go through the entire roster, I think we know most of the guys who are going to be on there. But as far as the pitchers, um, extra guys I would take. I would take Cologne, even though he's supposed to start game one of the NLDS, if they make it that far. 
because if something happens to Syndergaard, if he gets sick before the game, if he doesn't have it, if he gets injured, God forbid, you'd want somebody to step in, and that would be Cologne for me. I'd also take Robert Kazelman. Um, and then obviously you can figure out the rest of the guys are taking in the bullpen. I'd have Smoker on there also as a second lefty. Um, when it comes to the infield, um, you obviously know the Cabrera, Duda, uh, Reyes, they're going to be there. Um, if you're starting Duda, you almost have to carry James Loney because Duda has the back situation. So if something happens with him, you need to have Loney step in. The Mets also said they're going to take three catchers. So there's three catchers on the roster, Rivera, Darno, and Pulecki. So you can obviously figure that they're going to be on the roster. And as far as the outfield goes, people have been kicking around the idea of maybe not having Ligaris. I think that would be nuts. He's shown that he can at least swing the bat uh, lately. So you can use him as a pinch hitter if need be. But obviously he's on there as a defensive replacement. And you could even use him to pinch run and then come in for defense afterwards. So they have some tough decisions. But I think a lot of this stuff is really uh, already sorted out. And maybe the call right now is whether you're going to take Cologne, whether you're going to take Gazelman or Lugo. I think it should be Gazelman. And uh, we'll see how it shakes out tomorrow. So what, when does this get uh, announced on Tuesday? I'm not sure it has to be announced by Tuesday. Reading the MLB rules, uh, it has to be in before game time on Wednesday. So they could really take this thing all the way down to the wire. But they're working out tomorrow at City Field, and then Terry will be speaking with the media at the ballpark. So I think if there's not an announcement tomorrow, he's at least going to give an inkling of which way they're leaning as far as these major decisions and the roster is concerned. I think you're right about having Josh Schmoker on there. He, he's, uh, you know, the ERA kind of um, is a little bit deceptive because I think a lot of it had to do with his earlier performance, and he's just gotten a lot sharper since. Um, and and he's been he's just been a major factor coming down the stretch. Um, uh, JT, I would say I think I think this is no news that I don't want Eric Goodell anywhere near the roster, and I don't think the Mets are uh, thinking about doing that. But um, what where, what's your take on the roster going forward? Well, I agree with uh, with pretty much everything Danny said. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. Eric Goodell needs to be as far away from the uh, bullpen as he can possibly get. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's one of those things that you have to take three catchers just in case you need Darno for a pinch-hitting performance and then, you know, he happens to get injured or whatever. And, you know, Terry doesn't like to use his backup catcher if he only has two of them. So taking Ploiecki there is uh, is not my favorite idea because you're he's just he just hasn't been good on either side of the ball. Um But like you said, for example, jo- Josh Smoker definitely should be, should be in the... Uh, in the lineup, if you look at his um, his his last fifteen games, his ERA has been uh, lower than it started. And as you were alluding before, his it, it pretty much blew up when he first came up. So um, I like him in there. Uh, Fernando Salas, I think he's he's been pretty solid. Uh, I'm just I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of him giving up too much of the long ball. Like that's those have been his struggles, but thankfully. As as the weather gets colder, and you know it's gonna be one of those October nights, the ball tends to not travel as well. So uh, hopefully he's in there too. And then you have you know your regulars, you have you know your Hansel Robles, uh, you know Reed Familia, everybody else that needs to be in there. In terms of the outfield, I'm not exactly sure how many of these you know of if Brandon Nimmo would would make the cut. Um, if you're gonna have, I, I I wonder where in Terry's mind. 
the outfield is if if he would take Daza over Conforto. That's one of those things that it's a, it's Terry Ball um, all over again, and I okay. I, I kind of fear that he would he he would probably when you need a a pinch hitter he'd probably put Daza in before Conforto. So that's that's my big I guess concern just in the outfield as to you know what the depth chart is exactly, but. Um, Hopefully it's not too it's not too crazy and it's not too serious in that sense. I I think that you could probably have both Diaz and Conforto on the roster uh, an argument be made. I don't think it should be one or the other. Rich uh, Conforto, I think, definitely needs to be an option uh, if the Mets can drive Bumgarner out of that game. Interesting on that one. Um, I like Conforto a lot, as I think we all do. Um, I can't say that I'm 100% sold that he should be on the roster for Wednesday for the following reason. You know, he he really hasn't been terribly effective as a pinch hitter, or, or and that would pretty much be the role. Um, and when you think about it, the starting outfield would be the usual starting outfield of Granderson, Bruce, and Cespedes. And, and uh, I agree with Danny. Obviously, um, Ligaris needs to be on that roster because you need right. to go to defensive alignment in the eighth and ninth inning. Um, per... Personally, I would put Diaz on the roster over Conforto, and I know a lot of people are probably cringing at that thought, but but let's look at a couple of facts here. Diaz is a good defensive outfielder. He's made some outstanding plays this year. Um, as a pinch hitter, you know, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me as a pinch hitter, but he seems to have, have really settled into that role, especially later in the year. He has a little bit of speed, so you look at all of that, I think his value proposition in that particular role as a late-inning replacement pinch hitter, defense, all of that, I think his skill set lends itself more to that roster spot for that purpose than does Conforto. Um, that's my own opinion, um, but I do think I'd go with the veteran on the bench, veteran coming off the bench, rather than a young kid who pretty much has shown that, um, that he has struggled for the most part in that late-inning kind of a role. So. Other than that, um, I pretty much agree that with what everyone has said. I definitely would put Cologne on the roster because, God forbid, you know yeah. Noah struggles tomorrow night and he has 100 pitches through four innings like that Monday night Braves game. God forbid, like I said. Um, they're going to have to go to somebody, and I'd want to go to a starter there. I'd want to go to a Gastelman or a Cologne. I think they should definitely be on the roster. But um, I can't say I'm a huge fan of having three catchers on the roster, but I understand you know, you might want to pinch hit or pinch run for a catcher. So on some level, I get that. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit, but I can get over it. And uh, those are pretty much my comments on the roster that haven't already been uh, been discussed. Uh, Mike, how about you? I'm going to make this short and sweet. Rene Rivera is my starting catcher from here on forward, whether today or into the DS, whichever it may be. Uh, no... I can't put it another way. It's so frustrating to me that I don't even want to deal with that. I'm flipping a coin over <laughs> Loney and Duda. I'm leaning towards Loney only because he has uh, he has his timing down. He has his game rhythm going on. You know what I mean? He he he's up to game speed. I can't say that about Duda Wednesday. You know, I'll deal with mm. the DS if and when we get to that point. Uh, otherwise, I you know. That, those are my only real issues. I agree with Rich a lot having Cologne on the roster, just in case something goes completely with Thor. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, I'll add one of those names uh, for me personally that doesn't belong on those, you know, 
put me anywhere near the roster. Uh, I don't want Gil Martin anywhere near the roster. Uh, I'll yeah. leave it at that. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all Darren. I uh, I'll just reiterate something I wrote earlier this year. Uh, anything, just keep soup off the menu. Um, <laughs> but uh, also to add, uh, I think I would leave Conforto out of this one, uh, to be honest. Uh, chances are Bumgarner is going to go deep into the game, and uh, I really still believe that Conforto's struggles started uh, with the the weird game that Terry decided to first to, to start him against a left-hander for the first time, and it was Madison Bumgarner. Um, so uh, I would keep him away from the game, to be honest. Um, as far as Diazza, um, he should he should be there, I think, honestly. Um, but uh, yeah, just uh, don't get too cute, Terry, with the with the lefty righty <laughs> matchups. But you know, I know Terry will be Terry. Um, so. Uh, you know, you know. It's better. Else, it's yeah. better to deal if we prepare ourselves ahead of time, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's it's just all psychological. Um, <laughs> Danny, uh, we we really haven't uh, talked this uh, too much about uh, this next player that I'm going to bring up, and I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm just going to say two words: Asdrubal Cabrera, the ass man, the ass man, the ass man. Got to talk about the ass man. You know, it's 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 really interesting, and, and again, it goes along with the with the narrative of this season being strange. His signing came out of nowhere. Um, everybody was shaking their head. What the hell is going on? Not because they didn't want Cabrera on the team, but because it just seemed like a really strange signing. This is some a guy that the defensive metrics obviously hate. Uh, somebody that people said shouldn't be playing shortstop. He came off a few. Um, so-so seasons, and the Mets just snatched them up in a very weird, at the time, signing. And he's really been one of the, the key guys, along with Cespedes, along with Grandison lately, um, along with Zellman and Syndergaard. He's been the glue that kept this team together. And it's really been great to watch not only his performance on the field, but how he's been uh, accepted in the clubhouse, how he's taken on a bit of a leadership role in the clubhouse, um, I think I read a story, I'm not sure exactly who it was, but a week ago I read a story that something something happened on the field and maybe somebody didn't run out of ball and, and Cabrera went over to the player and, and basically put him in his place. So having somebody like that on the bench who is also performing his ass off is, is great, especially with David Wright out for the season and not really around the team that much. So yeah, it's been it's been great to see, and obviously every time he does something good, I get to post uh, Cosmo Kramer and uh, that Seinfeld <laughs> and the Ass Man. So that's definitely a, a plus. You're this whole the thing. Ass Man. You're the Ass Man. Uh, Rich, you know some players when they come here, uh, you know I think it's it's definitely a, a black and white term, black and white term to say they wilt uh, under the pressure. Um, you know, I think that obviously it's a very gray area. You know, it's, we we as play as a fan, excuse me, like to talk about players in these black and white terms when it comes to playing in New York. But there's some players. Uh, Jose Reyes comes to mind. Joanna Cespedes comes to mind, and now Estrubal Cabrera comes to mind, which is basically one, two, three in the order, fueling the beginning of of the the, the games. Uh, you know, there's just some of these players that that. 
uh, don't wilt under pressure and don't wilt under the, the bright lights of New York, as they say, uh, they get better. And right now, as Drupal Cabrera, you, you've got to say, not only has gotten better, but from the Sandy Alder, Alderson perspective, you could argue this is his best signing. You know, uh, like many, I was not a fan of the Cabrera signing for the reasons that um, have already been articulated. The defensive metrics on him were bad. Um, he had had a good second half of 2015, but had struggled in the first half and netted out, you know, very, I don't want to call him pedestrian, but not eye-popping numbers offensively, and he was getting older. So what, when they signed him... I was perplexed. I, you know, you, you, you're signing an aging shortstop to play a position that pretty much is a young man's position, and um, and his again, his defensive metrics were hor- were pretty bad. So what he has done, I don't know whether it's New York, Sam, as you pointed out. You know, maybe it's New York and and rising to the occasion. He certainly seems to love it here. Uh, maybe it's that. Maybe it's um, being around guys like you know, having Cespedes behind him and, and having a good team behind him because, let's face it, the Tampa Bay team wasn't great the last couple of years and, and maybe with better players behind him that's made him better. I think he's gotten even better since Reyes was in front of him. He said that the other day, that having Reyes in front of him and Cespedes and Granderson and Bruce behind him has certainly helped. So. What exactly the reasons were, it's probably some combination of all of those things, but um, he he has exceeded my expectations definitely more than any player on the current roster and, and probably more than any player in the last few years that they brought in. Um, because I had very low expectations for Cabrera, and, and quite frankly, one could make an argument that he's a team MVP. You can make a similar argument for Cespedes, of course, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, he, you want to talk about exceeding expectations, just look no farther than his Jubal Cabrera. Mike, uh, earlier in the season when Grandy was still in the leadoff position, you know, as Jubal was being hit down below, but sometimes he would be hit in the, uh, the, the two hole and it always seemed to make sense. And, uh, once Jose Reyes was here, it was just the match made in heaven. Certainly was, uh. Danny used my word, uh, glue, so I have to come up with something else. Uh, transmission fluid, how's that? Because uh, he's in the lineup. I mean, the lineup is a well-oiled machine. The guy's been great. He's been such a pro. And you know what? If anyone, if anyone has kept this team believing that this was actually possible, I would point my finger at him. I really would. Uh, like Rich said, beyond my expectations far beyond my expectations. And here's another one, just like Grandy. I'm shaking my pom-poms, baby. Go, Cabrera, go. <laughs> uh, Darren, were you watching live when that bat flip occurred? Uh, you know what? I I think I had gone to bed already, unfortunately. What? I had to get Yeah, I had to get <laughs> up early the next morning, um, so I had to, to, to miss that, unfortunately. But I did watch the highlight uh, probably... 50 times, um, and uh, it gets better every time. Um, this guy is a rock. He's been the rock for the Mets, you know, and, you know, I know he struggled midseason with runners in scoring position, but, you know, he fought through it. And, you know, right now, where would this where would this team be without him? Uh, I, I, I would, wouldn't want to think. 
JT, we've talked a lot about you know who's glaringly the best on the team. Who do you think right now is is the most unheralded member of that roster? Uh, unheralded member of that roster. You know, it's it, it's kind of funny because I think I think you could go back to as Drupal Cabrera. I, he's he's just been. You know, everybody always focuses on Cespedes, rightly so. He's been an absolute monster this year and throughout his Mets career. Uh, a lot of the focus gets put on Reyes for providing that spark in the leadoff position, too. Um, but Asdrubal Cabrera, I, I, I cannot talk and say enough things about him um, just because, and especially how good he's been at home. So out of his out of his 23 home runs this season, 18 of them have come at City Field. So he loves playing at City Field, um, and on top of that, he he just he he's been a lot better recently. After those early struggles, like we talked about with runners in scoring position, he's actually gotten his average all the way up to 260 when it was like way way below 200 earlier in the season. So he's been he's been battling. He's been awesome. He's been it, it's it's really nice to see so much passion out of this team. When those guys go into um, into the dugout after hitting a home run and he's there to take off their helmet, these guys, you can tell that they love each other. They're playing for each other in that dugout. That brings, you know, a team together that when we as fans see that, we, we you, you can't help but root for them even harder because they love the game. They love the name in front of their jersey that they're playing with. This guy has, let's not even forget to mention, he's been playing with injuries. His, his knees have not been that great. His, it's, it's his right knee, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that, that, that's been injured. And he's been, he's been playing with that for how many games now? So this guy is a workhorse. He is the epitome of just somebody who grinds out every single at-bat. And I, honestly, I think he's, he's been a little bit underrated by, by most casual fans. Obviously, those of us that... Uh, watch every single game and analyze every single at bat by every player. Know how important he is to us. But a lot of maybe casual fans see the the, the Jose Reyes and the Cespedes names and the Cinder Guards and you know those are the big names. But as Dribble Cabrera has been as much of a backbone of this team as any of these guys have been. So I, I really really think he's going to do something really special on Wednesday and hopefully hopefully I'm proven right. I hope so, uh, Danny. I, I'm going to keep going with that one. Who do you think is is a, a, a somebody who's not getting enough press for this team? Not getting enough press. Well, I, I mentioned Salas before, and he really has been uh, terrific since coming on board in August. So I'm going to go with him. And the strange thing about that is that, unlike with Zelman and to an extent with Lugo, I kind of expect. The other shoe to drop with Salas eventually. If you look at his statistics over the last four or five years, he really hasn't been that good. And when Terry um, gets someone and starts relying on them, it's really hard for him to get off that guy. Right. So I hope that Salas can keep it up. I hope that if the Mets have a lead in the wild card game and he's brought in, he obviously keeps doing what he's doing. But, you know, it, it does scare me a bit because he's been so good that if he does falter, it's going to be hard for Terry to pull the cord. Um, but he definitely deserves a ton of credit for, for what he's done since coming on. The Mets obviously had Robles, who was terrific early on. Then he stumbled. Then he was terrific. Then he stumbled. We, we see how amazing he can be. We see how uh, prone he can be to giving up the homer. So 
having Robles in the seventh inning when he's hot, when he's firing all cylinders, is, is a great bridge to Reed and Familia. But he hasn't been trustworthy enough to be that guy. So I'm cautiously optimistic about Salas. I'm still kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. But he deserves tons of praise, and hopefully he keeps it up. I would agree. Uh, Rich, how about you? Um, you know, I'm going to go with one that might surprise you a little bit. Uh, I'm going to say the guy who doesn't get enough press is Addison Reed. And yes, everybody's yes. aware of what Addison Reed yes. does. But l- l- let me let me try these numbers on for size. His whip is .94. Wow. The guy's yeah. thrown 77.2 innings and allowed 60 hits. And in 77.2 innings, he has 91 Ks. All right? So I mean, we all know why he doesn't get enough press. He's not the closer, and he doesn't need to be. He's completely comfortable in that eighth-inning role. Here's a guy who's a former closer, took on the eighth-inning role, and he is money. I mean, this guy, although his name gets mentioned a lot, you know, you hear the name Dellen Batantis a lot when they had Miller in the back end of the bullpen. How about Addison Reed? How about the work he does in the eighth inning that, you know, you, you might look past when Familia notches his 50th save. Some people will look past the contribution of Addison Reed in the eighth inning, but... Uh, find me a better eighth inning reliever in the major leagues than Addison Reed. I just don't think you can give this guy enough credit. And not to mention, j- just as, a, as an aside, when he walks off the mound like John Wayne and tips up the cap like that, mm-hmm. tell me you're not smiling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. D- you know. Have you, like, that's something that Howie uh, and Josh bring up a lot, is, is the way he walks off like a Western man. He does. I mean, the, you expect the next thing you, for him to do is to pull a gun out of his pants and blow smoke off off the tip of the gun, right? I mean, it's just like <laughs> it's like I'm a badass. I do this every day. Come mess with me, you know that. That's what his body language says, and that has to rub off. It has to rub off on the rest of the team. This guy's amazing. I freaking love Addison Reed. Yeah, I definitely got to go with that uh, with Addison Reed. How about you, Mike? Mr. Stengel, why did you select a catcher with your first ever pick in the expansion draft? <laughs> because without a good catcher, you have a lot of pass balls. That's why. Uh, Rene Rivera, that's my guy. Uh, he's a supreme receiver above Travis Darno. Uh, he's eradicated the running game as best he can, far and above what Travis Darno was doing. Uh, and that's what I need. That's what I need. I need a receiver. If both of them are going to be flirting around the Mendoza line, give me Rivera every night. Because he's been excellent with the pitchers. He's been calling good balls. He's much better defensively. And like I said, he's put a stop to a a chaotic running game against. So, uh, you know, what he's done... I think is going unheralded. I would have to agree. It, it, he's definitely been one of the uh, under the radar signings at the beginning of this year, and uh, you know we were talking about potentially Johnny Monell becoming the backup. So <laughs> that's thank God that didn't happen. Uh, Darren, how about you? Um, well, I mean, I think we're running out of guys on this team, but uh, <laughs> my my first answer was going to be Rene Rivera, but let's go with uh, James Loney. Uh, you know, this guy was left for dead by Tampa Bay, uh, banished to the minors, and uh, then sitting in AAA at San Diego, uh, he was tearing it up. 
And, uh, you know, Lucas Duda went down, and what could have been a disaster of uh, having Eric Campbell start most of the season turned into, you know, an above-average defensive replacement. And, you know, and he's hit, and he's hit, you know, and uh, he's done everything that we could have hoped for uh, filling in for Lucas Duda. And Danny, um, we're, we're going to move on after this, uh, but uh, I'll, we'll, we'll end with this. You know, we're talking about unheralded and talking about people like James Loney and Rene Rivera. The front office, uh, boy, they, they, they've been every challenge they've basically met. Yeah, and I think that Alderson was getting a lot of, a lot of hate uh, before re-signing Cespedes. This offseason, uh, even though it was never clear that he was going to go somewhere else. I always thought in the back of my mind that Seth was coming back. Um, but there's so many moves he made that were under the radar that really have picked up this team. And like like I said before, the, the Cabrera one came out of nowhere. And without Cabrera, I have no idea where this team is. Um, even though lots of people were against it, bringing Reyes back obviously gave this team a, a humongous jolt. The Fernando Salas trade was an enormous trade, um, not dealing any of uh, the other starting pitchers. If he would have traded Zellman uh, during the offseason to fill, fill a hole or, or traded Lugo or even traded somebody like Mats, this team would be dead. They, they wouldn't have had any starters left. Look at, look at Montero, who was an absolute disaster. He held on to the assets he needed to hold on to. Um, so he should get a ton of praise for, for how this team performed. The fact that they lost so many players... Uh, were beset by not only injuries, but just misfortune and, and weird bounces and Terry Collins costing them games to have to slip in, that they won 87 games, just three less than last season when they had basically the, the dream rotation minus Zach Wheeler is, is really incredible. And the entire front office deserves tons of praise for that. Yes, they do. And we'll see how uh, the story keeps getting written come, uh, come Wednesday. Um, and uh, this is our first time on SoundCloud. We could have gone with uh, wildcard edition instead of attaching a episode number. Uh, but you know, we're if for those of you who have not heard us ever before. Uh, you know, we're going to give you the uh, the full service podcast that that we always do this first time around on SoundCloud. And uh, since this is the 139th edition of the Rising Apple Report, uh, we go over. Usually, uh, if it's a Mets year, uh, you know, obviously starting in 62, uh, then we would talk about the, uh, the Mets team. Uh, but instead, we're going to talk about the National League legacy of uh, New York. And that goes back to the starting with the 1939 Brooklyn Dodgers. They, uh, that year, uh, the first year that Leo DeRocher was managing, uh, bounced back to an 84-69 record and, and started what... Uh, uh, was certainly the the beginning of the run that took them all all the way up to 1957 of being one of the best teams in baseball for that that stretch. Um, even though they finished third, 84 and 69 was nothing to, to uh, snuff at. And uh, I'll I'll be brief on this, but the the number one player by WAR, which I always think is so anachronistic when looking at these teams, was Dolph Camilli, Adolph Camilli at 6.4 WAR. And over uh, in their uh, their National League counterparts, the New York Giants, uh, the New York Giants were worse than Leo DeRocher's uh, Brooklyn Dodgers that year with a 77-74 record, finishing fifth in the National League. Uh, manager Bill Terry once more at the helm. And naturally, uh, one of the greatest New York Giants of all time, Mel Ott, was 
the best player on their team with a 5.7 more. Uh, guys, I'm not sure if you have number 39 in Mets uniform history up, but this is uh, quite the the uh, the list to take a look. And um, uh, I'll start before going over some of these players that I see on here. I'm going to start with you, Rich. Uh, if you have the the list, uh, do you have the list uh, uh, before you get? I do. All right, go ahead. What what's some of the names that uh, jump off uh, to you? Well, um, uh, Nino Espinosa jumps off the list at me, and probably to Mike as well. Nino Espinosa was a Met from 75 through 78, and he was a pretty decent pitcher. He was a pretty decent starting pitcher, but the thing that Nino Espinosa is most known for is being traded for Richie Hebner. And, um, you, you know, Richie Hebner was a guy who had, had a good run with the Pirates, and, and the Mets needed a solid bat, and they, they picked him up. And you want to talk about a guy who just pouted when he was traded to New York. He didn't want to be a Met, didn't want to be there. And it was just an ugly situation. So when I think of Nino Espinosa, I think of, and he also died tragically at a very young age, I think of a, a solid pitcher who was traded for a guy who, who stands out in my mind as just like a pouting child the entire 79 season when he was a Met. And then I'll throw one more in. Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds like the niece treatment, Rich. Pretty much. But Hebner was more of a jerk. I mean, while he was there, you could see he wanted no part of being there. I know for you young guys, it's hard to imagine. But, but just imagine a guy who was a decent player who basically his entire body language was, get me the hell out of here. Um, and it was kind of uncomfortable to watch. So that, that's, that's Nino Espinosa. And then I have to go to Doug Sisk. Um, Doug Sisk was actually on the 86 team. Uh, started with the Mets in the earlier 80s, and, and Doug Sisk was someone who, he was a reliever, a, uh, a, he was sort of an eighth-inning guy, closer slash closer. Sisk had, and, and Mike, you could probably remember this, uh, Sisk probably had one of the best sinking fastballs ever. I mean, he almost had a Bruce Souter-like pitch. It, it, the bottom would drop out of the thing. The problem was Sisk couldn't control it. He, he walked a lot of people, but when he was over the plate, hitters would pound the thing into the ground. So Sisk was kind of a frustrating pitcher to watch because you knew if he could harness that sinker, he could have been like a junior Bruce Suter, but he never really did. And he was um, and kind of unceremoniously unceremon dumped after, uh, after a few bad seasons with the Mets. So of the 39s, um, I'm going to let the younger folks talk about some of the guys from, from, more recent, from the more recent past, but, but I'll go with Espinosa and Sisk. And I think a good segue would be to go to Mike uh, next. Oh, remember Jeff Kent when he was a <laughs> Met? I mean, he was one of the more ornery players you'd ever come across. Uh, one of those that got away, uh, I, I always say. Uh, when, when you have a second baseman who's that young and, and, and who drives in 65 runs, in that particular era, that was a novelty. And I often pondered, man, what could have been? Uh, and then again, I think about him hitting in front of Barry, bon uh, Barry Bonds and thinking, you know, how much of that was, was Jeff Kent or how much is that, you know, uh, trickled down from, from the Bonds effect? We'll never know. Uh, but I, to me, he's always one of those who got away. Uh, Hubie Brooks, we are doing 39, right? Yes, 39, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hubie Brooks is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, only because, you know, like Rich, we, we, we spent those really, really dark years between 
77, uh, let's just, you know, call it through 82, because by 83, things started, you know, coming into place. Uh, remember in 83, at least Orozco won, like, Pitcher of the Week one week. And remember that, Rich? And, and I do. There was another player <laughs> who had a highlight. So 83 started ch- changing. But but Hubie Brooks w- was a, a shining light who came through the system, and, and ultimately we traded him in the Gary Carter trade, but he, he was a, a tremendous crowd favorite, a favorite of mine, uh, and a lot of fun to watch. And I'll leave it at that so I don't take anybody else's players. All right, so Darren, how about you? Do you, uh, do you have uh, a list in front of you? I, I do, um, and one that stands out to me is Roberto Hernandez. Uh, do you remember he was acquired, uh, I believe it was 2006, uh, right at the trade deadline because Dwayne Sanchez uh, dislocated his shoulder in a taxi cab uh, accident. Uh, I think it was down in, was it down in Miami that he did that? Yep, in Miami, yep. Yep, um, yep. so uh, we got, the, I think he was like 41 at the time, or, or, or close to it. Um, and was it the the first or the second go around that we got him? And we we had him. The, the, we had him in yeah 2005. We had Five, him, yeah. uh, and then he went to Pittsburgh, and then obviously because of the Dwyer Sanchez, Oliver Perez and him came aboard from Pittsburgh. That's right. Yeah. So uh, that that's one that that stuck out to me that uh, I, I I remembered uh, uh, being devastated because uh, Sanchez Sanchez was uh, having a pretty good year if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, that that um that was one of the big reasons. I mean, it's kind of remarkable that they made it as far with all the injuries that they had by the end of the season with Orlando Hernandez and Pedro Martinez going down. Um, but yeah, you could definitely point to Dwyer Sanchez being one of the big reasons why it it wasn't meant to be for two thousand six. Um, a a uh, J- JT, what is your what pops out to, to you for number three? One of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite players, just because I was, uh, I was, let me see, how old was I? Uh, I think I was about 11 years old in 98. Yeah, I was 11 years old in 98. Benny Agbayani. Um, he, he wore uh, number 39 in, in, 2000, in 1998. Um, and everybody loved Benny. Like, who, who, who wouldn't love Benny? So... Um, he switched his number in later, but I yeah, like the fact that he he wore it in th- he wore thirty nine and ninety eight. So whatever. it's funny seeing the list sometimes because a lot of these players are just randomly sprinkled. Uh, you know, you obviously know the num- uh, the other numbers better, but it's it's fun to talk about some of these players that come up uh, randomly uh, from time to time. Like uh, let, let's let's uh, Pedro Feliciano wore it briefly in two thousand six. Uh, Danny, who is somebody that steps uh, steps out of the list for you? When I look at the list, uh, two of the names pop out for me. Uh, the first one is Juan Acevedo, who wore it in 1997. It's not really anything to do with Juan Acevedo as much as to do with 1997. First time as a Mets fan that I clearly can remember and recall them actually being good. It was their first winning season uh, in forever. And like I said, the first time that I was actually old enough to enjoy them having a winning season. Uh, that was also, I think, the year when they wore the ice cream man caps with the white, with the blue brim that were just oh, horrifying. Uh, 
Uh, and then obviously like like JT, um, Benny Ibayani. He was a bit of a cult hero. I remember during the 2000 World Series, getting off the train uh, on the way to Game Four, they were giving out Benny Ibayani like Hawaiian punch towels. And one of the highlights of of my Mets fandom, highlights of Shea Stadium, was Game Three in the 2000 NLDS against the Giants. And obviously Ibayani hit that game-winning home run over Barry Bonds' head in the 13th inning, and I was sitting in mezzanine, had a great view of it. Bedlam ensued. It was absolutely amazing. So, yeah, uh, Acevedo for 97, and uh, Benny Agbayani for, for the year 2000. Yeah, I totally get And, and you know, I, I forget. What, what is uh, the number that we know Benny Agbayani as, Danny? Oh, uh, wow. Um, so a while. Yeah, so at some point, you know, Benny Agbayani will be coming back up, and, and as he should. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so there's some random names here. Before I get to some of the other random names, uh, you got to talk about Bobby Parnell going down to the uh, the the uh, some of the newer names on here. Uh, I've never been a, a fan of Bobby Parnell, uh, but you got to say he put his time in 2008 to 2015. He was number 39. He, he can grow a mean beard, uh, and he was very very nice. Um, and I, I'm you know sorry, Bobby, but I'm happy that we've moved on from you. Um, Jerry Blevins, uh, do you, what can you say about the year he had? He was absolutely spectacular. Uh, the first, I, I think it was like 20 batters as a Met that he faced. He, he didn't give up a run or something, something like that. Or, um, you know, he, unfortunately we didn't get him too much, uh, after seeing him storm onto the scene last year after the trade with Matt, uh, of Matt Dan Decker to Washington for him. Uh, but Jerry Blevins has been uh, absolutely spectacular. Uh, but Danny, weirdly enough, and, and you've got to sometimes ponder whether Terry even knows this, he's uh, better against righties. You're talking about Blevins right now? Yeah, Blevins, yeah. Uh, this season he has been, uh, which is an aberration for him, and it's really strange. But Terry only cares what, what arm uh, the ball comes from. He doesn't really look at numbers, I don't think, which is why he brought... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is why he brought... Josh Smoker in to face so many lefties this year when the guy is better against righties and he's had reverse splits over the course of his career. So it doesn't matter. If somebody's a lefty, they're going to face a lefty. If somebody's a righty, they're going to face a righty. And you're just going to have to accept it uh, when it comes to Terry. Um, but he'll get manager of the year votes uh, regardless of the fact that he doesn't read the stat sheet. Somebody yeah. should really stop me before I really get going. <laughs> well, I think, I think maybe we'll save some of this for uh, whatever happens in Wednesday uh, for the next podcast. Um, I, uh, to finish up the list, and I'm going to have to go back to Rich and, and Mikey uh, just uh, briefly for this one. Uh, Gary Gentry, um, Doug Sisk, and for some reason the name that's really popping out to me is Kelvin Torve. <laughs> Rich, take it away. Well... Um, of the names you mentioned, I already t- uh, gave my piece on Sisk, but Gentry was a guy who, um, y- you know, it's a, maybe a, a touch before my time. I, I remember him vaguely uh, on the early 70s teams. And, um, you know, Gentry w- was kind of like um, the number three or four starter behind Kuzman and Seaver and Matlack. So, uh, you know, Gentry was a solid right-handed starter, as I, as I recall. Um, and, um, and just, he, he just never really got the kind of accolades that, that he would deserve because of the fact that he was pitching behind Matlack, Seaver, and Kuzman. So 
but but a solid ride. You think he threw pretty hard, right, Mike? If you remember that, or, or is he a little before your time too? He was a little bit before my time. He was a hard thrower, and actually, him and Matlack just barely overlapped. As a matter of fact, Matlack was the one who made him expendable, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think the Mets traded him to the Braves. Uh, but uh, no, he was definitely uh, part of a trio with, with Kuzman and Seaver in 69, uh, key component to that starting staff, but... Uh, I definitely feel that Matlack made him expendable. I think they, you know, his last year in Matlack's rookie season uh, overlapped. And and Kelvin Torve, and Sam, I know you mentioned that name. If I remember correctly, um, Kelvin Torve was one of those guys who was uh, a great minor league hitter. And um, and I'm like, oh, you know, the Mets have this guy in, in AAA. He's, he's quite a hitter. And uh, I think he was a bigger guy, you know, like a first baseman kind of a guy. And he just never made it. I mean, he just never. He, he was he was like a Mike Hessman, you know, like a Triple A AAA All Star year after year, but just it just didn't make it in the majors. Oh well, and now I'm realizing yeah. why his name popped out to me because they it was one of the only instant instances that they've given out 24 accidentally when yeah, uh, Joe and Payson uh, had wanted that number after uh, Willie Mays was a player for the New York Mets. Never wanted that anybody else to wear number 24. Uh, so it was unceremoniously retired until randomly Charlie Samuels gave Kelvin Torve number 24, uh, which quickly got uh, uh, taken off of his back. Uh, nothing against <laughs> Kelvin Torve, but uh, say, hey, Kelvin Torve is not is not who the man is. Um, I don't mind, I know, right? I can't believe nobody's <laughs> ever come up with that. That's, that's remarkable. Um, we're, we don't have too much time left, but um, I... Since it's the first time that we've actually gotten on a podcast since uh, right after that Giants uh, series, um, we gotta we gotta pay our respects basically um, to some horrible news of um, uh, of Jose Fernandez uh, that we heard last Sunday. And uh, Danny, I'll start with you. It, it, it really not only just shook all of us, I, I think, by storm, but really uh, really hit all of the baseball family hard. Yeah, I mean, it was it was shocking. I woke up on Sunday, uh, and I actually saw that, obviously, Michelle and I do the tweets on Rising Apple, and I saw that she had tweeted something to the effect of somebody we, we loved watching, secretly or not so secretly, and I had no idea who she was talking about, and then I saw it was Jose Fernandez, and I kind of did, like, a double take. I just couldn't understand what the hell happened, and I thought maybe it was a a freak thing that happened that wasn't an accident, maybe something, an aneurysm or something freakish like that. And then I saw it was uh, a boating accident. It was just, I really couldn't process it for, for the entire day. I mean, we, we tweeted about it, we talked about it, we wrote about it, but I still couldn't process it. And even the next day and the, the first game in Miami when the Mets were there and, and Fernandez was getting on it before the game, it was just, it was just something that seemed fake. That, that shouldn't have that shouldn't have happened, and you know it's just such <clears throat> it's such a shame that somebody who was that good, that young, that vibrant, and then when you read all the stories about how he was off the field with with his family, with fans, with charities, it's just it's a horrible thing, and and hopefully the Marlins can can carry on and and keep the memory with with them, and and it's just you can't describe the kind of loss it is really. Yeah, it's it is hard to put into words. I was. <laughs> 
I, I hadn't been to a baseball game in a long time, so I decided to go to closing day, and I actually decided to, t- you know, just for the journey, um, I took off from East Flatbush and, and walked all the way to City Field from, from all the way here. It took me about three and a half hours, but it was at some point, you know, while I, I, I was personally at, at a certain, uh, you know, like this is the last day of the baseball season, Let, let's, let's do this, I, I was excited, and then all of a sudden that just completely punched me in the gut like you said it was it's still hard to process uh um like you said danny um i'll you know we'll we'll go to jt uh next i i it's nothing you know let's just let's go down the line you know jt darren mike and then rich uh you know about the whole situation well it, much like uh danny when i woke up on sunday morning uh my first reaction actually was i thought it there was another player named Jose Fernandez that had passed away in all seriousness, just because it was that um, shocking, you know, to think that that, that it could have been him. Um, and then you see, you know, his picture and obviously the Marlins uh, count being referenced and everything. So it was just it, yeah, I, like, I'm sure most of you guys that that Sunday was just, it was uh, tear inducing and everybody was, you know, just talking about different stories on Twitter and, you know, sharing different experiences and having that series on Monday, um, starting in, uh, in, in Miami against the Marlins. I mean, uh, that was one of the most difficult things I think I've ever watched it sporting wise. And then having D Gordon hit that, that home run off Bartolo. I mean, obviously as Met fans, we wanted to be able to win as many of those games that we could down the stretch. But when you watch something like that, it you, it just, it, it makes you see that you know baseball as a whole is such a healing sport, and it's such a, it's such an incredibly emotional um, occurrence that was happening at that moment. It's just it's so much bigger than than whatever wild card race uh, the Mets had to, uh, uh, the Mets were going through at the time. So those those two days were just uh, it, they were extremely emotional um and you know uh, like danny said hopefully um you know the the marlins can keep his legacy going i know a lot of people are uh they're able to they found out more about the charitable things that jose did over the years and they're contributing and that's bringing awareness to um if i'm not mistaken it's a childhood cancer uh foundation that he had been working with um so it's you know, nothing really positive ever comes out of losing life, but maybe some, you know, some slice of, you know, goodness can, that his legacy will live on, um, can, can bring more, more and more people uh, to the things that he actually did. And hopefully, you know, somebody had tweeted up before, and I thought it was a great idea, maybe naming an award after Jose Fernandez, uh, an award attributed and given to the player that shows the most amount of passion and the most amount of love for the game, because if that's one thing that, as Met fans, we hated facing him because he was just that freaking good. But you know, he was he loved the game, so that's. Oh, uh, you know, it's it's crazy uh, the connection the Mets a- and uh, have to him as an opponent. You know, considering that he he uh, his first uh, major league his, his uh, major league debut was at mm-hmm. City Field against the Mets, and then now it, it bookended. I mean, it basically bookended. Where the Marlins face the Mets right after such a tragedy, uh, Rich, it's 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 tough. Well, yeah, you know, as I was watching it, Sam, and the whole thing unfolded. When you think about it, 
a lot of things we do in life and a lot of things that happen in baseball have a template. There's precedent and you act a certain way. You know, think about things you do if somebody that you, you know passes away or, or at a wedding and, and there's a way you're supposed to act. What, what got me the most was watching the game on Monday night. I, I don't think the Mets knew what to do in that situation. Certainly the Marlins didn't. Um, there was no template for this. There was no precedent. And so the, the, here's a guy who was beloved in baseball who 36 hours earlier tragically lost, lost his life. And the Mets had to go down there and play a game against his team. Imagine being in that spot, let alone being the Marlins themselves. So it, it was kind of an unprecedented thing. It, it was one of the most awkward things I've ever seen watching that game because we as fans were watching it, and on some level you wanted the Marlins to heal, but you didn't really want them to win the game, but you kind of felt okay if they did, if it was a part of their healing process. So it was awkward for us. Imagine how awkward it was being on the field as a Met and just how gut-wrenching it was being on the field as a Marlin. So it was just something that, after all these years of watching baseball, there, there was no precedent, no template for that particular thing. And he didn't know how to feel. He didn't know what to do. And I'm sure the players didn't either. Um, and then, you know, I, just to echo what others have said, with Jose Fernandez himself, what I tweeted the next day, and I still believe, what happened was a, a very wonderful young man who did great things was lost and oh by the way he was good at baseball because mm-hmm. jose fernandez was more than a baseball right. player i mean he, he the jumping out of the boat to save his mom and and the donating of his rookie of the year check to charity and all those things i mean he was just kind of a kind of you know, not to be corny but he was kind of a shining light and 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 the world lost him and and the fact that he was good at baseball was just a minor thing. It wasn't. It wasn't who he was necessarily. It wasn't all of who he was. So, it was just a very, very strange. Even even the Tuesday and Wednesday games, I still felt kind of strange watching. I don't know if you guys did too, yeah. but it felt weird. Well, yeah, I think by the end of that second game, I think you could tell the Marlins were just completely drained. Um, you know, it was four to one going into the eighth, and the score ended up being twelve to one. It was. It was. Uh, you know, it was, it was difficult. Uh, um, uh, I'll finish up uh, with Mike and Darren. Um, uh, Mike, I guess the closest precedent would be uh, uh, um, Thurman Munson. And that came at a time when it probably wasn't as emotionally, it wasn't as, as socially acceptable, excuse me, uh, for grown men to be crying on the field. And so when we're talking about precedents, uh, watching D. Gordon come around and step on home plate with tears in his eyes. Just definitely had never seen anything like that. Uh, wow. Uh, I started bowling early, and it ended late. Uh, that was such an emotional game. Uh, yeah, I never saw anything like it, and I do remember Thurman Munson. I remember Reggie crying out in right field. I remember Gidry crying on the mound. I remember a bunch of Yankees crying that day. Uh, unfortunately, the clock doesn't okay. stop, and... and what transpired that night in Yankee Stadium, just like in Miami, uh, y- you don't script that because, you know, uh, the show must go on, as they say. So, uh, yeah, Thurman Munson immediately came to mind, but if you'll allow me, I'll take a completely different spin on this. I mean, Rich started to. I'm just going to continue it. Uh in the Latino community, unlike here in the States, 
these sports figures, they're they're tired. Mike, you there? I think we might have lost him. Uh, let's, yeah, we might have lost Mike, unfortunately. Um, uh, yeah, it's Darren. Yeah, if you go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it was just a, a complete gut punch uh, that didn't seem real, uh, and still, you know, doesn't seem real. Uh, you know, I got a text in the early morning uh, from my friend that said, you know, uh, Jose Fernandez was killed last night. And honestly, the first thought that I had was baseball. Like, oh, no, he didn't pitch last night. And uh, and then the reality set in. He's like, no, he was killed. Like, oh, my God. Like, how, how is that possible? And anytime you lose, anytime we lose someone and it's someone that's younger than you and someone that you, you saw was so full of life and had such a bright future ahead of them, it, it's just... It's just tragic. Um, you know, I remember his first game. I watched it on TV, and I, I ran to my computer to pick him up on my fantasy team. I was so excited by, by what I saw. Uh, and, you know, he was just an electric player. And, you know, he's going to be missed for, for a long time in baseball. Well, uh, to sign off on that part, uh, rest in peace, Jose. Uh, you know, I hope you're you're at rest right now. I hope you're at peace right now. Um, so, and it's I I hope that we maybe can get Mike back because uh, you know he was he was definitely about to make a very interesting point regarding the Lat Latino community. Uh, JT, I believe you you are yes, Latino. Yes, that's correct. correct. If if you want to uh, wrap us up with with that, uh, just to give us a little a little bit well, of what Mike was going to go down, if you, probably, have a, yeah. if you have a, an idea of where he was no, going. no, most definitely because you know every time, um, especially in the Cuban community too, it's a very um, just based on the history and the amount of um, you know lack of freedom that the Cuban people have experienced over decades, just being able to be make it as refugees to, to, to the United States and be able to be and lead these amazing lives and be role models for these kids that are struggling and that really don't um, have that much to look up to. Like maybe kids that grew up here in other places that are a little bit more fortunate do. Um, Jose Fernandez is, is, is like a god to, to, to that culture um, and to Latinos in general. I remember, um, I think it was Eduardo Perez, if I'm not mistaken, that said it. When a Cuban succeeds at Major League Baseball or in other aspects of life, it's like all Cuban people succeed on their back as well. So Jose Fernandez had that, and he, you know, he always thought about the community. He always reached back, and he always helped the Miami community. He was very involved Um and obviously Miami having a very Cuban heavy population, that connection, it's just, it's, it, he was like a local kid in Miami, even though technically he was from another country just because of the, the population um, from Cuba that's there. So it's, it was something that, you know, anytime uh, it, you lose somebody from your community like that, it makes a huge impact. But in that community specifically, Jose Fernandez was, everything to them so it, it impacted them even harder and obviously latinos all around the world lost one of their own as well so um you know i don't want to put words into 
into his mouth where, where he was going. But I think that that is a, a point that um, a lot of people have made, and I think it definitely merits uh, the consideration as well. Thank you for that, JT. Uh, so before we have our last word, guys, uh, we're going to go to predictions. Uh, start with you, Danny. Wednesday, what do you think's going to happen? I'm tempted to use Clubber Lang from Rocky Three and just predict pain, but I'm not going to. Um, you know, I think with the way this has been shaking out, uh, so many people are focusing just on Bumgarner and not really talking about Syndergaard, uh, which I think is totally ridiculous. Um, you know, I really think that it's going to be a battle um, into the late innings, and the Giants have had one of the absolute worst bullpens. Am I back? You're back, Mike. Yes, 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 you are, Mike. <laughs> well, Danny was just speaking about um, his prediction for yeah, Wednesday. So, you know, if you look at <clears throat> how the Giants have been over the last two months, uh, they were pretty much brutal after the All-Star break. Uh, their bullpen has been horrific. So if the Mets can keep this thing close, uh, have a slim lead, even be trailing by a run in the late innings, I really like their chances. Uh, San Fran's bullpen is a mess. The Mets obviously have Reed, they have Familia, they have Salas, they have Robles. It'll be all hands on deck. Uh, anybody they really need to step in can step in. Um, I have a good feeling. Uh, I'm obviously scared of Bumgarner, as everybody should be. The guy is an absolute beast. He was ridiculous in the 2014 postseason. Um, even if you look back at his numbers, he kind of sucked in the 2012 postseason. Nobody brings that up. But, yeah, you should be scared of Bumgarner. But the Giants should be scared of Syndergaard, too. This guy hits 101 miles an hour with his fastball. Um, he has a slider that can reach 94-95. He has a ridiculous curveball. Uh, he seems poised. He seems ready for this. He doesn't seem to be phased by anything that's going on. Um, I'm expecting a really low-scoring game. I'm expecting a battle, and I'm expecting the Mets to come out on top. I th it, it, it's kind of reminding me of uh, when the Mets played Clayton Kershaw and the Dodgers on uh, ESPN uh, one when uh, the Dodgers, I think it was 86th weekend, actually. Uh, and unfortunately, Familia wasn't able to lock it down that night, but um, they stayed in it against uh, against Clayton. Um, you know, they gave a, a, just a one or two runs up early, and uh, but they were able to tie the game, and I believe, and they had a lead late. Uh, uh, you know, in a game that Clayton Kershaw started. So I kind of you know think about like that type of mentality. Uh, absolutely. Um, JT, what's your prediction? I'm actually predicting a low-scoring game as well, but I'm predicting uh, the Mets will score three. The Giants will only be able to get one run off Syndergaard. I think the bullpen uh, for the Mets is going to keep it solid. Uh, I'm hoping Syndergaard will go seven and we'll have an eight-nine pretty smooth sailing from from the pitching aspect. Um, but on the on the Giants side, Bumgarner, I think he's going to be solid. He'll probably just allow one run and then we'll tack on a couple late against the bullpen. That's how I see it going. It would be really nice if uh, you know if it goes a lot easier and it's you know three nothing and then just one run here. You know it's it's easy. It would be easy on me, but who knows? These kinds of wild card games are absolutely ridiculous. So that's what I'm hoping for. Unpredictable. <laughs> uh, you know, and as I say, Rich, uh, you know the wild card game is unpredictable. What's your prediction? Well. Um... You know, it, it logic tells you that it'll be a low-scoring game, and that um, 
maybe the Mets could win it late because they clearly have the bullpen advantage. So my prediction is something weird's going to happen, and actually will be a fairly there'll be some runs scored. Um, I would love to see the Mets get the Bumgarner. Uh, I'm sick of this guy. I'm sick of hearing about him. I know he's a beast and all that stuff, but <laughs> I'd really like to torch the living crap out of this guy on Wednesday night. So um, and, and you know Noah. Let's face it, there's a, there's a way to beat Noah. If you're patient, if he's not in the strike zone, he's going to throw a lot of pitches early. So I'm going to say that something weird happens. Neither starter is great, and the Mets win this game, I'll say, 7-4. I, I like the specific. Uh, Mike, go ahead. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, all I'm hoping for is that Terry Collins is up for the challenge to go up against Bruce Bochy in a one-game situation. He's going to be forced to manage our worst nightmare. So I just hope he's up for it. I hope he gets a good night's sleep and does his homework, and, and I just hope we get through this. I wish we were better at manufacturing runs. I wish we could do that a little early in the game, perhaps. You know, But I know that's not our game. Uh, for whatever reason, guys dig the long ball, or is that chicks? In any event, you know, let, let's let's go. Let's just do this. Uh, and perhaps, you know what? The situation just may call for a big game from Jose Reyes. Uh, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna sit on the long ball, perhaps he can do otherwise. Um, yeah. I have two two views. There's what my brain says and what my heart says. My brain says that we lose a heartbreaker. Um because Terry Collins makes a devastating miscalculation uh, in the later innings. Uh, and the fact that Denard Span and Angel Pagan are going to be running all around the bases. Um, that's what my brain says. But my brain isn't always right. My heart says that somehow, against all odds, we clobber Bumgarner. That I don't know what happens, but... We score four, say four runs off of them, four or five runs. Um, we we take we take charge. Noah Syndergaard is pumped up. He throws eight strikeouts, and somebody comes through with a huge hit from an unlikely source. Uh, that's my that's what my heart tells me, and uh, I hope that my heart is right and my brain is. Uh, is uh, sleep deprived. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he nailed it with that, Darren. Um, it's 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 you can't count this team out. We most of us, you know, we there's there's audio record of us saying that it's not really meant to be this year. And here we are going into a major big game, the first of the Mets kind. The, the first time that the Mets, that, that us as a fan base, are going to see these play-in games. Um, I mean, uh, especially at City Field, but in terms of this, this era of wild card, obviously there was 1999 play-in game. Um, but uh, I, I've, I've got to say, I like what you're saying, you, uh, Mike. Uh, got to be a big game from Jose Reyes. Uh, you know, he's the leadoff man. He's the one who who's, uh, starts the charge against Madison Bumgarner. Bumgarner has not looked all that sharp recently. Uh, and, and I don't think that necessarily he can flip a switch like we, we all like to say with the uh, the postseason. So I think the Mets need to get to him early before he can settle in, as we've always seen what can happen when Bumgarner settles in. Um, and uh, so I, I, I'm not going to go 
on a wild score prediction, but I'll definitely say that I, I think the Mets are going to pull this one out. I, I, I haven't, they haven't come this far for me to all of a sudden start doubting them now. And I was more pessimistic about this season at certain points in, in the in the year than I've ever been as a fan. Uh, so um, I'm going to go all opti- optimism right now, and I'm going to say that the Mets are going to pull this out and uh, take on the Cubs once more. That'll be fun, right? Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, guys. Uh, we're we're uh, getting to the end of our first SoundCloud edition of the Rising Apple Report. we got to thank uh, SND Podcast uh, uh, for hosting us on here. And, um, uh, Danny, I'm going to start with you of our first uh, new, pot, new channel, Last Word. Last Word for me, uh, heading into Wednesday, is, is Hope. I think most of us alluded to this earlier in the show that at 60 and 62, it looked like the Mets were dead in the water. I don't think anybody expected them to turn the thing around, much less go on a run like they went on. Uh, So, you know, it feels like it's the polar opposite of the 2015 run when they were just on the backs of Harvey and DeGrom and Syndergaard and Mats. But it's just a strange feeling I get about this team. And, yeah, it's not going to be... As easy. The the starting pitching is not going to be as dominant. Cologne's going to be in the rotation instead of in the bullpen. You're going to have Robert Gazelman in the rotation, Seth Lugo in the rotation. But when you look at them, uh, you know, Jay Bruce is peaking. Uh, Cespedes, if he gets hot, can carry a team for weeks at a time. Um, and then you look at the bullpen. It's just much better than last year. Yeah, Familia, obviously, at the end. But Reed has been not just incredible for the Mets. He's been one of the best pitchers in, in all of baseball when it comes to coming out of the bullpen in, in the late innings. And you have Fernando Salas, you have Blevins, you have Smoker. And when you look at last year in the World Series, they blew four games that they were that they were leading relatively late. Um, so, yeah, will it be difficult to beat the Cubs if you get to the NLDS? Yeah, it'll be difficult. Um, but I just can't count this team out. Uh, once you're in it, you have a shot. And if you've watched the playoffs, uh, you know that it's crapshoot once you get in. And... Um, that's why they play the games. That's why a five-game series can be so hard for a team that's that's so heavily favored like the Cubs. And hope. You have hope. The second season is starting on Wednesday, and, and let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, Rich. I'm going to say difficult, and it kind of tails off of what Danny said. It would be so Mets to make a deep run into October the difficult way, the hard way. Um, last year they had you know the dominant starting pitching, everything Danny said, and you kind of expected they could do really well. This year, for some reason, I share that feeling that although it's going to be difficult, the Mets do everything the hard way. It would be so Mets-like to go on a run, winning games in improbable fashion, um, you know, without man starting pitching. And I, I, something tells me that it's going to be a difficult run, but I think it could be a deep one. Mike. Maybe the magic is back. Between now and Wednesday's game, I'll be at my altar to Joe Boo and shaking my pom-poms, baby. I'm just happy to be here. So, you know, I'm having a great time, and I'm not going to burden myself with expectations. Let's go Mets. JT. The end of the even-year bullshit. Uh, for the last <laughs> three... Um, Last three even years, uh, the Giants have won have won the World Series. So, um, I really just want that to end. And I think many baseball fans around the world are going to be cheering for the Mets for that specific reason only, just to end the even year bullshit with the Giants. Um, 
but it's going to be tense. It's going to be fun. Uh, and I'm just, I'm happy we're here because like many of us, many, you know, have already mentioned back in August, a lot of us didn't even think we were going to be in the possibility to be here. So at 16, 62, I think was the record back when we were two games under 500, the, um, if somebody would have told us you're going to be in the wildcard game, oh, and by the way, you're going to be hosting it. Oh, and by the way, Noah Syndergaard is going to be starting. I think any of us would have taken it in a heartbeat. So uh, let's go Mets. Let's do this. Let's go Mets. Derek. You know, as I wrote uh, today earlier today was that, you know, we're pay- we, we are playing with house money. We're, we're not supposed to be here. And, you know, everyone's going to, you know, all the analysts and, you know, probably in the Giants head, they're probably thinking that they're, they're the ones that are supposed to win. And, you know, that's, if the Mets players take the attitude that, you know, it's, it's us against the world, you know, that's what's making, that's what's going to make this team dangerous is that the fact that they don't have anything to lose by, by win. you know what I mean? Like, they're not supposed to be there. Uh, they're not supposed to be in the driver's seat. Uh, so they're in control of their own destiny. And, you know, I, I think that they're going to be up to the task and they're going to use that as motivation to, to make a run. Well, my last word is going to be something that I've been saying uh, basically uh, since leading up to the trading deadline of last season. Keep on pushing and that's my last word guys thank you so much uh for this uh for this new inaugural soundcloud edition of the rising apple report uh we we couldn't uh, be happier to be over here and uh we couldn't be happier to be talking about a uh a potential playoff run for these new york metsies so let's uh let's let's get it done Let's uh, battle it out Wednesday. Uh, whatever happens, have a smile on our faces and applaud the 2016 New York Mets. Well, let's keep on. Let's keep on pushing. Uh, thanks, everybody, and uh, as always, let's go Mets. Are you still mixing station gas and oil for your string trimmer, leaf blower, or chainsaw? Eliminate the mess and the guesswork with True Fuel, the original pre-mixed two-cycle fuel. True Fuel is ethanol-free and precision-engineered for small engines, improving performance and extending the life of your outdoor power equipment. And True Fuel is available for both two- and four-cycle engines. Empower your equipment with True Fuel. Available at your local home and garden center today. Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Whippy, whippy, whippy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty.